in prayer. Let us pray. Father, first we thank you for your word this morning, encouraging us, for encouragement from the psalmist who tells us to give thanks to you, Lord, with our whole hearts and to recount all your wonderful deeds, to be glad and exult in you and to sing praises to your name. Because, Lord, you defeat our enemies. You maintain our just cause. You sat on your throne giving righteous judgment. And Lord, we thank and praise you this morning for calling us into your kingdom and into your family. And Lord, two of our responsibilities as family are to restore with humility those who have been caught in the web of sin and also, Lord, to help carry each other's burdens. And Lord, we thank you that because we are in your kingdom, that we are your subjects and that you protect us, that you provide for us and that you defend us from the darts of our enemy. Lord, your word reminds us, as we read this morning, that you are the righteous God, that you sit enthroned forever, that you establish your throne for justice, that you judge the world with righteousness, that you judge the peoples with uprightness. Lord, there is no unrighteousness in you. There is no vileness in you, Lord. Everything that you do is altogether righteous and holy. Lord, you are a stronghold for the oppressed. You are a stronghold in times of trouble. As other scriptures tell us, Lord, you are a very present help in trouble. And Lord, we thank you that you are our refuge. We thank you that you are the one whom we can go to. You are the one in whom we can put our total trust. And Lord, your word tells us that those who know your name put their trust in you. Lord, cause us to put our trust in you. To not always rely on our own strength, Lord, because we are weak and feeble and needy. And Lord, we are in constant need of your help and your guidance and your encouragement and your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you, who belong to you. Lord, we thank you that we can always go to you in times of need. Lord, we ask you as the psalmist asks, to be gracious to us, to see our affliction. And Lord, as we ask you to do that, that we recount all of your praises. Lord, people have sunk in the pits that they made for all of your believers. Lord, they lay down the nets and end up getting caught in them themselves. Lord, you made yourself known in all the earth, yet man still rejects you. But Lord, you're still worthy to be praised because you will execute judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The plots and schemes that they have for your people will come back on them, Lord, will, will come back onto their own heads. So Lord, with all this being considered, help us as a church, help us as individuals that make up this great church. Help us, Lord, in all of our sister churches and like-minded churches to not bow the knee, to not capitulate to the culture, to not give in to the sinful rebellion that permeates our culture. But, Lord, to stand fast, to stand firm in your truth, to stand fast and stand 
firm in your word. To stand on the word of God as our sure foundation. To not deviate to the right or to the left. But Lord, to stand firm on your word. Stand firm on your truth. Because Lord, it is you who who will reward us for our faithfulness to your word. Lord, I pray that you encourage our fellow brothers this morning. Bob and Phil and Anthony and and Justin and uh, Brother Josh and Carlton and our Brother Curly and Brother Steve, Brother Sylvester, Brother uh, Josephus and Godreger. All these brethren, Lord, encourage them. Encourage them, Lord, by your spirit. All of them deal with pastoral discouragement in some form or fashion. All of us do, Lord. I pray that you encourage those brothers this morning by your spirit as they uh, preach the gospel, as they shepherd the flock of God. And Lord, encourage the faithful who are attending their churches, that they may be faithful to your church, that they may serve well at their churches, that they may pray for their leaders also. And Lord, I pray this morning as I preach your word from Ephesians 2 and 10, that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text well, that we are your workmanship. We are your work of art, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Lord, help us this morning to understand this text by the power and means of your spirit. And help me, Father, as I preach this text, to do it well to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Man, let us turn to Ephesians. We're finishing this section, looking at verse 10. We have three principles we're working from, but before we get to that, we're speaking about being God's workmanship. God's workmanship. God's workmanship. And just for context, again, I'm going to start back at verse 1. Looking at the context of this section of Paul's introduction to the Lord's church so we're going to begin with Ephesians 2 beginning at verse 1 and it reads his follow and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So y'all see that thread there, going from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being God's workmanship. There's a progression that takes uh, place. The psalmist in Psalm 116 and 12 asks the question, you know, how can I repay the Lord for his goodness to me? The psalm actually says in 116 and 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? That's what the psalmist asked in Psalm 116 and verse 12. If it is all of grace, then we are indeed left asking this question. How are God's people expected to respond to such love, such mercy, and such grace in saving us from our sins, in raising us up spiritually from the dead? You know, again, Paul tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, we were walking according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we once all walked, gratifying the sins, the sinful desires of the flesh. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trust, passes and sins, what did God do? He made us alive. He made us alive. We couldn't make ourselves alive. We couldn't save ourselves. When you're dead, you can't do anything. You're just laying there. You have no will. You have no moral fortitude. You have no mental fortitude to make any choices at all. So when you're spiritually dead, the same thing happens. You have no ability to choose God. You have no ability to serve God. You have no ability to desire God because you're what? You're dead. But God made us alive in him. Together with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable, I mean, immeasurable riches of grace in his kindness toward those of us who believe. By grace, we have been saved through faith. That's why Paul said that we talked about that last week. Why did Paul say it was grace? Because we were dead and God raised us. How did he raise us? Why did he raise us? Because of his grace. It is by pure grace that we are what? Saved through faith. And remember, faith is a gift that comes from God. God gives us the faith to believe. We can't spiritually dead. A person can't have faith to believe because they're dead. God has to give them that faith. So the faith that you have to believe came from God. It didn't come from you. You can't tell an unbeliever, just have faith in God. <laughs> Because that faith has to come from God. God has to give them that. So by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Salvation is not of our own doing. 
It is the gift of God. It is not of works. We don't do anything to be saved. There's no work that we do to be saved. There's absolutely nothing. We bring nothing to the table but our sins. And so because of all this, we get down to where we are now where Paul says, for we are his workmanship. For means because. Because we're his workmanship. So our big idea this morning is that our salvation by the grace of God does not improve our old nature. We're not getting a, a renovation. Okay? Uh, salvation doesn't improve our old nature. But it gives us a new nature. Which in turn does good works to the glory of God. When God saves us, he gives us a totally new nature. He doesn't remake the old man. As the Bible says, we put out the old man with his deeds and we put on the new man, a totally new person. So we're going to look at three principles uh, this morning. Uh, one, we are God's workmanship. One, two, we are God's new creation. And two, we are created to do good works. And we're going to explain what all those three things mean. Workmanship, new creation, and good works. So the first thing I want to note is that we are God's workmanship. What is a workmanship? Workmanship comes from the uh, Greek word uh, poema. And if you're a good guesser, you can guess that that word sounds like the word poem. So that Greek word workmanship comes from the same Greek word that means poem. Okay? Or poetry. So this word is only used two times in the New Testament. It's used here and is used in Romans uh, 1 and 20. This is our position in grace. We are God's finished product, yet we're still in progress, in process. We're God's workmanship, but God is still working in us. We're not a finished work yet. We're finished but God is still in the process of working in us. Now God, the thing is God doesn't save us merely to save us from hell or save us from wrath that we rightly deserve. But God saves us to make us something beautiful, make something beautiful of us because sin mars the image of God. Sin makes us ugly. Sin makes us, as Paul says, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Sin puts us under God's just and righteous condemnation. Sin is ugly. There's nothing pretty about sin. There's nothing pretty about living in sin. There's nothing pretty about living in sinful rebellion. Sin mars, it makes ugly the image of God. That's what sin does. So when Paul says that we are his workmanship, we are God's beautiful poem. We are like a work of art. When God takes us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, we become a work of art, a masterpiece. And we're only a work of art masterpiece because it is God 
who has done this for us when he saves us. Saint, if you are believing here this morning, you are God's masterpiece. You are a work of art. You are a result of God's workmanship, molding you from the inside, giving you a new heart, giving you a new nature, giving you new and holy desires. You may look in the mirror at yourself and say, I'm not a work of art. Look how ugly I am. Look how big my nose is or, or thin or full my lips are. Look how, how slanty my eyes may be or how flabby my skin is or how big or small or ugly my feet are or whatever the case may be. You may look at yourself and say that. But you are a work of art. <coughs> As image bearers of God, first of all, I want to explain this. All of us have beauty. You know, people say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. That's not true. That's not biblical. We say that, don't we? Think about this. If beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, that means we determine what's beautiful. And not our creator. Uh, newsflash, we didn't create anyone. <laughs> okay? We are one creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beauty is in the eyes of God. What did God say when he created everything? He says what? It is good. When he created man, he said it was very good. Why? Because we are made in God's image. We're image bearers about God. We are the Imago Dei. We, we were created to mirror and to image God. So all of us are beautiful, no matter our shape. I may be a little round around the waist, round, round around the chin. I don't have those nice chiseled jaws with the bulging biceps. I mean, they're bulging under all this, you know. They're bulging under this, but, you know, but... I'm still made in the image of God. When you say beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, you're leaving it in the eyes of man. And you can't let man be the arbiter of beauty because standards of beauty change. Think about that. Man's standards of beauty change. Now, for a woman to be beautiful, she must basically walk around naked. With the bikini on, twerking on Instagram or Facebook Reels, or filtering their pictures to remove all the, the blemishes. That's what the world says is beautiful, flawless, no skin imperfections, no spots anywhere, no crow's feet, and all these names they've given to to all. Just, just think about all the features that that they named, crow's feet, and all this other stuff that man has has made to. Look, oh no I got these things growing out the side of my eyes oh no the horror let me go get a doctor to inject some fluid into my forehead to smooth out all the wrinkles and inject some things into my cheeks to make them a little bit more fuller or inject them into my lips to look like a clown why because they're living by a man's standard of beauty Every single person whom God has created is beautiful because they are made in the image of God. 
take that to the spiritual realm. As a believer, no matter how flawed you are, you are redeemed, you are saved by grace through faith, you're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, you belong to the kingdom of light. Though you fall, though you will sin, you're not going to live in sin because true believers don't live in sin, but you're going to sin. Despite your sin, God still set his love on you. You are still God's work of art. You are still God's masterpiece. It's not because of how you feel. It's not because of what other believers may think of you. Paul says we are his what? Workmanship. We are God's work of art. It is him who determines that, not we ourselves. Just like Israel did not choose themselves to be God's people. God told Israel he set his love on them. God set his love affectionately on all believers. That's why Paul says, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It is God who loved us. It's not us who loved God. We hated God in our hearts. So it is God who makes us his workmanship. God's love is a transforming love. It meets us right where we are. But when we receive that love, guess what? It takes us where we should be going. That's what God's love does. It's a transforming love. It takes us from thinking dark thoughts to thinking godly thoughts. The love of God that saves our soul changes our life. When we know that we're God's workmanship, it gives us a different outlook on life. We don't look at it as man does. We are God's workmanship. And also we're God's new creation. He says here, created in Christ Jesus. I want to read this quote from Spurgeon right quick back on God's workmanship. I, I, I love that. This is what Spurgeon said about it. He says, the spiritual life cannot come to us by development from our old nature. I have heard a great deal about evolution and development, but I am afraid that if any one of us were to be, develop, be, be developed at our utmost, apart from the grace of God, we should come out worse than before the development began. That is so true because that is, that is man's problem. Man wants to develop himself. Man wants to evolve himself. And what happens is they become a worse person. They become more narcissistic. Why? Because they are impressed at their own improvement. That's why, again, self-love is, is it's a devastating idolatry because the more you love yourself, the more you're not going to think you're loving yourself more. So what are you going to do? Love yourself even more. And you're never going to think that you're loving yourself enough. So you're going to keep loving yourself, keep pouring into yourself and becoming more and more self-centered, more and more narcissistic. Because you're trying to improve yourself and you're never going to meet your own standard. Because, again, our standard is always shifting. It is always changing we will never get to a place where we're satisfied with self-worship 
It's like a dog chasing his tail. We'll come out worse than before. So again, we're also created in Christ Jesus. That's that new creation. We're God's new creation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. If you want to turn to that with me, that's fine. This is what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5 about being a new creation. All right, look at uh, 5 and 16, 2 Corinthians. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So what Paul is saying in that verse is uh, according to worldly standards. We don't regard anyone according to worldly standards as believers. In other words, Paul is saying this physical life is not all that matters. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in who? Christ. He is a what? New creature or new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, behold means wonder of wonders. All things have become new or the new has come. And look at, oh, I love this, verse 18. All of this is from who? God. Who makes us a new creation? God. All this is from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means the, the, the wrath of God uh, was appeased by Christ and Christ made us right with God. It is the, reconcilia- the reconciliatory work of Christ that made us right with God. Christ is our mediator. So that's what he means by that. Through Christ, we have the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And we're getting to that in our next point, created for good works. That's part of uh, what it means to do good works. So Paul is saying here that in Christ, God was reconciling us to himself. Christ is the one who makes us right with God. No man can come to, to the Father except through him. So going back to the new creation thing, it is God who makes us a new creation. That's why he said, behold, all is like an unveiling. So this new creation that, that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians created in Christ Jesus for good works. It is a new creation. God totally makes us over. He takes us from being dead to alive. Wonder of wonders. We are made new. The new 
has come. We are a new creation. We are recreated spiritually. We become a totally new person. So we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are a new creation. Totally new. Totally made over. New desires. New thought process. So this is a new spiritual creation. And this actually mimics the uh, initial creation account in Genesis. The spirit forms us as believers to make us new creations. It is done by means of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives us that new nature. The renewal of the spirit makes us new creations. So we thank the Lord for that. And lastly, we are created to do good works or for good works. For good works. Our lifestyle of believers, as believers rather, after we meet Christ, our evidences of our salvation, our lifestyle, the fruit is shown in our lifestyle after we come to Christ. Now I want to uh, explain something about works here. Christianity is a work is a religion of works, but our works are empowered and made possible by God's grace in us, being his workmanship and being his new creation. So our works are empowered by God's grace. So when he's talking about good works, he's not just talking about any type of good works coming from any type of source. Because even, even atheists can do good works. But we're going to kind of separate this out. But I'll say this, the difference between Christianity and other religions, all other religions, all other religions are man-made religions. Christianity is not a man-made religion. Okay? Christianity comes from God through his son, Jesus Christ, who was the God-man who was fully God and fully man. I wrote this down. I was thinking about that, that chart out there on the wall that talks about all the different religions. And just think about this. Man-made religion in its various forms seek to have human works entirely or partially involved in salvation. In Buddhism, ceasing desire saves you. Buddhism is all about killing your desires. It's called asceticism where you don't have any type of sinful desires or anything like that at all. Desires for material things. Buddhism is all about ceasing your desires. Basically punishing your flesh. That's your way to salvation. In Confucianism, which is another Eastern religion, education, self-reflection, self-cultivation, and living a moral life saves you. That's in Confucianism. Reflecting on yourself, reaching your zen, 
You probably hear people use that word Zen. Zen is a uh, Buddhism. It is a offshoot of Buddhism, where it's all about meditating. You know, reaching your level of Zen, where you're just meditating and you're just calm, kind of like yoga, which is Buddhism in practice. In Hinduism, detaching yourself from your separated ego and making an effort to live in unity with the divine will save you. When somebody divine is the divine in any and everything. In Islam, living a life of good deeds saves you. In Orthodox Judaism, repentance, prayer, and working hard to obey the law saves you. And we know after going through looking at Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's no way in the world you can obey all that. <laughs> in New Ageism, gaining a new perspective, seeing how you are connected to all things as a divine oneness saves you. Being one with the universe or the universe working on your behalf, as they say, saves you. If you hear people referring to the universe, that's New Ageism. Nearly all religions and spiritualities hold in common this one thing, that if there's a savior, it's the person that they see in the mirror every morning. All other religions, if they have a savior, it's the person that they see in the mirror every morning when they wake up. In all these other religions, their savior is themselves. They are their own savior. They have to work. And again, Christianity is a religion of works, but it's just not our works. Not our works. Only by the work of Christ are we saved. Only by the work the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection and his ascension to heaven are we saved. Only through faith in the sinless life. The substitutionary death and the bodily resurrection of Christ can we be saved. That is part of the gospel that we must get right. Christ lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death, meaning again, he died in our place for our sins. He bore the wrath of God against sin on the cross. He took on the curse of sin on the cross. He took our place on the cross. It was our sins that put Christ on the cross. It's called the vicarious suffering of Christ. To, to suffer vicariously means to suffer in the place of someone else. Christ suffered in our place because we are the ones who deserve to be on that cross. <coughs> we are the ones. That's substitutionary death. And then the bodily re resurrection. Christ's spirit didn't raise from the dead. His whole body intact was raised from the dead. And he was seen, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, by over 500 eyewitnesses. Some who were still alive at the time that Paul wrote that book. And then the disciples saw him 
as recorded in the book of Acts, ascend to heaven. Where he told them, tarry or wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. They saw Christ ascend where he is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus saves us, which results in our good works. We are not a works-based religion. We don't work to be saved. We don't even work to stay saved. That's what holiness churches teach, that you got to stay saved. It is God who keeps us. Christ said, all that has come to me, I have never lost one of them. All that the Father gives me, I will raise them up at the last day. First Peter tells us that we are kept by the power of God. We don't work to get saved and we don't work to stay saved. We work because we are saved. Amen. We are saved to do what? Good works. Not saved because of good works. Not staying saved because of these works. We are saved by grace through faith unto works. We are saved to serve. Faith without works is dead, as James says in James, the second chapter. So Paul says we are created to do good works. Being saved to a new life in Christ is valuable. It is meaningful and it is purposeful. This is what Paul is telling us. There's a purpose in being saved. We're not saved just to say, thank God I'm saved. And sit and twiddle our thumbs until he calls us back home. The world is filled with sin and death. And God's people, we as God's people, we are part of the mission to see sinners saved and all things made new. What we do in this world as believers makes a difference. What we do in this world as believers glorifies God. What we do in this world as believers is good for others. But look at what the world is doing. The world is trying to stamp out Christian influence. The world is trying to silence believers. Not knowing that we are here to preserve this world. That's why Jesus told us in Matthew, the fifth chapter, that we are the what? Salt. What does salt do? It preserves and it adds flavor. We're here to preserve this world <coughs> from burning up more quicker than it should. <laughs> okay? We're here to preserve this or We're here to preserve the world by spreading the gospel, calling people to repentance, calling people to be saved. Calling people to forsake their sinful ways and come to Christ. That is part of preserving. That is what salt does. It preserves. It keeps from rotting. But our culture says, no, we don't want the church. The church is hateful. The church is transphobic. The church is racist. The church is this, that, and the other. And look at what is happening to our culture as a result of that. Why? Because... They're trying to tamp out the influence of the gospel, the good works that Christians have been called to do to save these people from themselves, save them from destroying themselves. 
Those are the good works we're called to. And also, we add flavor. That's what salt does. I don't use salt. But some people say they use salt for flavoring. It runs my blood pressure up, so that's why I don't do it. But salt, it adds flavor. Salt is a commodity that's as old as this earth. And it adds flavor. What do Christians do? We add flavor. We add meaning. We add significance to our world. Christian, your presence means something in this world. Your presence means something in the lives of unbelievers that you know. They may never tell you that. But your presence means something to your unbelieving family members, your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving co-workers. Your godly presence in them or around them rather matters. It is significant. You'll be surprised how many people your presence is a light to. Your joyful countenance in the midst of trials and troubles. You'll be surprised at who's watching your witness. You'll be surprised who's listening to your words. You'll be surprised who's looking at your reactions and your response to everything else that everybody is talking about at work. Because you are salt. You are an influence. Your presence is meaningful. Your presence is valuable. Your presence is purposeful. And that is the good works that God has created you for to add meaning and purpose to this world full of people who don't know what their meaning and purpose is. They think their meaning is to somehow think that they can change their gender or somehow think that it's okay to kill their baby in the womb or so, somehow think that it's okay to sit at home on their lazy butts and collect a check when they know that they can work. That's what they think their purpose is. Somehow think that they're supposed to show their body to the world on the internet, on social media. Somehow think that their purpose is to create chaos and anarchy and, and go and rob and steal and cheat and use drugs and, and have promiscuous sex and, 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 and do all this ruin to themselves and, and to society. That is what they think. But we as believers can show them that there is a better way. Don't think that the normal everyday stuff of life doesn't matter because it does. Because Jesus reigns over all creation. Jesus reigns over all things, even the so-called mundane things in our life. The things that we think are not uh, extraordinary. All the works that we do in the Lord's name are good works. And we were created to do those things and more. thing about living in our nation particularly is the concept of uh, American individualism and that has distorted the gospel humans are not saved because God loves them so much individually it's because God loves fallen mankind mankind in his image And he does that 
so that we can give that message to other people. What are some of the good works, some examples also of uh, good works? As I said uh, before that even unbelievers do good works. Even apostate churches do good works. You got a lot of apostate churches right here like Grace Episcopal over there by the post office and Trinity Lutheran across the street from the post office and, and First Methodist downtown all those and uh, the first Christian church is across the street from Emily poor Emily uh, you know she's got that apostate church right across the street uh, from hers and apostate denomination you know all those churches do quote good works some of them sponsor you know does meals on wheels feed the hungry you know tend to the homeless and those are not uh, bad in and of themselves but the source of that work is evil because those are apostate churches and denominations that have departed from biblical orthodoxy that's what we mean by apostate they uh, apostate they have departed from biblical Christianity they have departed from the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ they may stand as churches they may have nice edifices nice looking buildings nice ancient structures I was telling my wife like First Methodist has a beautiful sanctuary marble floors and everything but it's an apostate church First Christian Church that's an old church building over there next to the old Social Security office on uh, Layton beautiful old sanctuary uh, Gracie Principal people go take pictures over there all the time it's a nice backdrop for pictures. But it's an apostate church. The denomination that they're part of, the Episcopal Church, same thing. Trinity Lutheran Church, same thing. The Lutheran Church, uh, the, the liberal arm, is, it's an apostate. But they all do good works in the community. But they're not doing it from the heart of those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are against Christ. So those works are rubbish. Because they're not leading to the saving of souls. They're meeting man's material need. But not man's spiritual need. Which is what man needs the most. And that's where churches can get tripped up with good works. We can focus so much on doing those things. Which is again. There's nothing wrong with that. We've done it ourselves before as a church. In our 12 years. That you can feed all the homeless you want. You can give them things. You can feed the hungry. You can visit those in prison. You can give to the poor. You can do all those things. Nothing wrong with that. But the goal of the church is to save souls. To depopulate hell. Those people can go to hell on a full stomach. And with a home. And well. And still do what? perish forever so when we talk about good works there are a few things to think about one can be any practical deed done to benefit others spiritually now we can show hospitality we can give money to those in need we do good to all men as we have opportunity Galatians 6 and 10 we can give alms which means giving to the poor 
but also another practical deed done to benefit others is to share the gospel with unbelievers. Share the gospel with those people that we're helping. Let them know what their greatest need is. Because if we don't have silver and gold for them, if we don't have money to give them, if we don't have a place to house them, does that stop us from letting them know that they can inherit a mansion with many rooms if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That they will be saved from their greatest malady, which is sin? The greatest thing that ravages their soul? If you can't do those other things, then we can do that good work. <laughs> other good works, including uh, being responsible to those who rule over us, obeying civil magistrates, being a good employee, relationship of servant and employees to their employers. That's a, that's a good work because you know what? That reflects the gospel also. Think about these jobs people work on. You know, you walk in, you know, I'm going to use this as an example, you know, like McDonald's. You know, you go in there and you got, who, where were we at? Uh, I took the boys to this restaurant in Montgomery uh, eating breakfast. I mean, the restaurant I went to on uh, Fabry Avenue in Montgomery. And it was a hook getting into an argument with the customer. And it was a heated argument. I'm sitting there trying to eat my ham my pancakes and sausage and eggs and there's a little homemade breakfast, but that breakfast was good too. I said, man, like something about to pop off in here. You know? <laughs> I'm like, man, I was I was like, you know, stuff like that, you know, stuff could go sideways real quick. Man could have ran outside to his trunk or whatever and you know, came back in. I, you just don't you ne just never know. You know, the way I work, you know, see it on news all the time. But just imagine if that employee was a Christian and that man was getting cross with him and he responded to him differently than how he was being responded to. Obeying uh, the, the scripture in Proverbs which says a soft answer turns away anger. That's a way of witnessing the gospel to someone. That's a way to do that. And you never know what they may do for a person. That's a good work. There's so many different works that God has called us to. They're too numerous to name. But at the root of them, they're coming from the heart of those of us who are a new creation. And as believers, it is going to show our good works that God has foreordained us to do beforehand. We're called to reflect God's character. That's what the ultimate good, good works are. Anything that reflects the character of God. And so we think about as we, as, as we walk in this world. Everything that we do. There's no such thing as sacred works and secular works. There's no sacred, secular divide. No such thing as that. Anything and everything we do. In Christ, for Christ, and like Christ is a sacred work. 
Even the most menial and mundane tasks of life are infused with meaning. Everything. The most mundane task. Taking the trash out to the street is done to the glory of Christ. Why? Because you're helping to keep your house clean, number one. You keep your neighborhood clean. You're doing it to the glory of Christ. They become the good works that God has prepared for us. Don't, don't think for a second, people, that there are any meaningless things in this life because they're not. Because all of them are done to the glory of God for those of us who are in Christ. There are no mundane things. Don't let the world tell you that. No mundane task. All of it are the good works that God has created us to do that he called us to beforehand in every single thing we do we are doing a good work because it's coming from the heart of someone who has been changed and transformed by Christ holding the door open for somebody is a good work then somebody over in traffic who who rode that that lane all the way out, <laughs> you know, they 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 know they had to get over, and you're like, I'm not gonna let them in. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna stick as close to that car in front of me as I can. <laughs> Y'all ever feel that way before? They gonna they they know that lane was running out. They gonna ride all ride it all the way out <laughs> until they get until they get to the them big old cones or whatever, and then they finally. You know, put a little blink on, and you just, okay, all right, you know. Or honk the horn aggressively, like, "Eh, eh, eh," you know, or whatever. (laughs) That's still a good work. That may not be done to the glory of God. I do it the wrong attitude. (laughs) (laughs) If it's done the wrong attitude, no, it's not to the glory of God, you know. (laughs) Anyway, you all get the gist of it, right? There's no, there's no no mundane works that we do as believers every work that we do has meaning and it has purpose and it's valuable because it's done from the heart of someone who's been newly created amen a couple of questions here of conviction what are some specific good works that you've characterized we characterized in our life this past week just something to think about what are some good works that we have done this past week and then also do we have a sense of God's foreordained plan for our life we're going to be trophies eternal trophies of God's grace do we really have a sense of that if if not we should we must know that we're eternal trophies of God's grace and we live with a sense of that it is God's foreordained plan that we will be his eternal trophies of grace. That should motivate us to do what? Do those good works. May God continue to do that work in us because we are his work of art. Amen. Let us pray as we close. Lord, we thank you that we are your workmanship. We thank you that we are your work of art. Lord, we are saved by Christ Jesus to glorify you.
through the good works you prepare for us. Lord, may we infuse each moment of our day with the grace shown to you by, to us rather, by Christ. Lord, there's nothing more powerful. There's no testimony more greater in this world than a believer rightly understanding the grace of God and applying that grace to all aspects of our life. And Lord, when we do this, we show Christ to our spouses, our children, our friends, our family, our co-workers, even our enemies. We show these good works to them like that, Lord, that they may be saved. As I always pray, Lord, I pray that you use this message to bring sinners to a saving faith in you, that they may turn away from their sins, become this new creation, and do good works that will count for glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.